Welcome back to Pickups, the podcast where we go back, we unravel the greatest movies of all time, and, you know, just talk all things filmmaking, blah, blah, blah. That sounds like such a cheese. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> from your soul, from your, from your, from your yeah. belly button from butt From your diaphragm, bitch. From your diaphragm. From my diaphragm? Okay. This is from my soul. Yeah. Welcome back to Pickups, the podcast where we go back and unravel the greatest movies of all time yes. and talk all things filmmaking. I am John Michael Powell. Yes, he is. I am Sean Harrison Jones. And I am Zachary Ray Sherman. And this week, we will be discussing the 2014 Tom Moore film, Song of the Sea, starring David Rawl, Brendan Gleeson, Fionnula Flanagan, Lisa Hannigan, and Lisa O'Connell. But before we jump into the Song of the Sea, news of the week. <laughs> Do you guys have anything that you wanted to bring up? Uh, what about uh, CODA's sale? I mean, that's the big one of the week for me is the CODA sale. Do you want to talk about the CODA sale? I, I probably know the least of all of us, but CODA was a film that debuted at Virtual Sundance, independent film, quote unquote. And I mean, it was, it's based <laughs> off of a French uh, hit and it was made here in the States and it sold for a whopping, drum roll, $25 million. $25 million. The, the largest sale at Sundance of all time. Wow. I mean, that's huge. I mean, yeah. Apple TV Plus twenty five mm-hmm. comes in and spends $25 million. And, and by the way, can I say no, no faces in this movie. There's no Brad Pitt's. There's no Rebecca Hall. Well, there is. By the there way. is Marley Matlin, and there Sean and I both Matlin. know her. I mean, she. Yeah, she's no, no. Somewhat and, and I'm not, She is. Marley Matlin is a great actress. Uh, she is by no means, and I. I this is not a slight. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm sure she knows this as well. You can't finance a movie on her name. No, right. It's just impossible. Right. And you know, I've been through that development process a lot, mm. and I've seen. I told you guys, I mean, I've had big names that studios have told me will not get a movie made right. that are way bigger, way, way bigger. But I guess names that, you know, very, this movie, this movie well. is about deaf culture. And I think Marley is kind of the pinnacle of deaf acting in maybe, you know, America. And so oh, I yeah. bet, I bet you, you know, maybe in the financing of this film that came into play, we're going to, we're going to really serve up deaf culture and present it in a way that, you know, America hasn't seen in an indie movie and Marley's there, but I'm sure that helped, but I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. There's no name. Names, there's no stars, blah, blah, blah. There's there's no names. There's no stars. Also, by the way, it's a movie about fishing culture, right? So that means you're shooting on the water. The budget can't be that low. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. You, at Sundance, you'll get a range of movies that cost $50,000 all the way up to, you know, I, I, on the low end, I would guess this movie cost about $3 million. Right. That's, I mean, and that's a, that's a, even a weird number to make a movie at to make your money right. back at. So, but three to $5 million. Right. My point is... They made a movie that seemingly ticks no boxes mm. of of the hit, you know, boxes. If if somebody came in and said, "I'm going to make a movie that's in the three to five million range," it's about deaf. The cast is ninety nine percent deaf. Mm-hmm. N- you don't know any of the names, really. You, you know, you, there's one there's one name in the movie, and you know, uh, it's a drama. Right. Right. Good luck. I can. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I can't even understate how impossible the odds are to sell that movie for $25 million. Well, it must be good. You know, I was more cynical yesterday in our conversation going, fuck Sundance, it's, they, they don't understand the little artist. But this is, you're, you're making me excited about it. You know, it sounds like a, a worthy story and it's, I, it must be freaking good, you know, if it went that high. 
it must be good. Uh, I hope so. Minari, I haven't seen. I, mean, we, I brought this up. That's kind of a similar story last year, which Minari was a big hit. Not a huge cast. Some known faces, but not a huge huge cast. That's a, a drama about Asian American farmers. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a hard sell. Now, granted, mm-hmm. both of those movies, uh, Minari and Coda, do have a social aspect that helps them mm-hmm. and markets them. But but $25 million. I mean, sure. that's that's insane. Somebody's betting on it. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I, I wonder what the budget was. I, it, it said in that article that the Motown soundtrack is heavily used. So I feel like, I feel like we're up to 10, 15 million on a, on a budget, but still that's a huge fucking profit. I'm excited mm-hmm. to see it. Yeah. And, uh, and oftentimes you'll see after a movie is sold, you know, they may, they, they've, that, that film probably got the festival rights to all that music. So mm-hmm. you know what does that mean? Well, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with this. Tell me. There, there are many ways to license music, but oftentimes when you make a movie that gets into a festival, and let's say you want to use "Get Up Off That Thing," that's going to cost you a lot of money, mm-hmm. right, to get that song. Mm-hmm. But for a cheaper price, you can kind of bet on your your movie, and you can negotiate a license for just festival rights, meaning you can take that movie to the festival with James Brown in your movie, and then go try to sell the movie. Yeah. And if it goes to a wider audience, you can let the buyer or distributor renegotiate that that licensing deal so that they can pay. So one, I did once I did a documentary um, called uh, No Cameras Allowed. We made this mm. this documentary about this kid who sneaks into a bunch of music festivals all over the world. So we ended up with performances by Jay-Z, Coldplay, Beyonce. We probably had 40 s- songs in the movie mm-hmm. for, that were big hits. Did you get them all? We did. We sold the movie yeah. to MTV, which was a smart sale, right? And MTV ended up figuring out how to pay off that licensing. I mean, I don't know how they did it, but the movie came out and MTV took care of that licensing stuff. But is a festival license itself cheaper? It's considerably cheaper. You can get it for a fifth, maybe a tenth, wow. depending how you approach wow. it and, and what sort of luck you may get. But like the movie that JM and I just did, Thunderbolt, which is now Young mm-hmm. Hearts, we first went into festival and we were negotiating. This is a good indie indie tip. With a heartfelt letter, you can get a song for $200, you know, if, if the people read it on a, on a good day. Now, is that to the person who owns the copyright? Yeah, you're dealing with the licensor and the publisher. There's and the owner of the actual music and the owner of the publisher. Yeah, they're two camps, two different emails, and they both have to say yes. So you're, 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 you're going uphill, but it's doable. But you sent, so, so Zachy, you sent those when you were doing Thunderbolt to Young Hearts to both of those entities yep yep exactly you sent the heartfelt was it just one song or was it a few songs usually we only had one song from each artist her publisher exactly so it's sarah did all of that with our friend lauren who's our supervisor but and did you get them all uh we ended up having to like drop one or two and use alts that became great and even felt better very good yeah. yeah sarah did a great job yeah but anyway so back to the the sundance sale i mean i am excited about the fact that a movie that had no names in it sold for such an exorbitant amount of money and was a drama. Like, yeah. I, I think in the last few years, you've seen a lot of genre stuff pick up pace on the sales side. A lot of buyers and a lot of developers are wanting the next sci-fi hit or horror hit. It's been a lot of genre stuff. And dramas have kind of fallen to the, to the, to the territory of, like, it's really hard to get them made and get them out there and get them seen. And... If nothing else, the CODA thing will open up the door for 
you know, the, the filmmakers who are, if you just go out and make a great story and a great movie with a conversation, right. there will be buyers and there will be right. potentially right. be a place where you can take your movie. And I think that's exciting for independent filmmakers. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right. I guess that'll lead us into our uh, our conversation this week, right? So um, okay, yeah, some so, Irish mystic wonder. Ooh, this week, yeah. I think I think it was fun. We dove into kind of our first animated film, um, and this was this was a split vote. This week we all picked three different movies, and the ran- the randomizer picked Song of the Sea for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I was gonna say we also this was also our first. Um, you know, we were kind of aligned on how we felt about Obscure Object, and I felt like this was our first uh, somewhat divisive viewpoints on this one review. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we have different. This this is an interesting conversation because Song of the Sea brought up some different feelings in all of us. Should we sing? Should we sing a little Irish jig to send them in? What's that Weatherman song? There once was a world of weather. Yeah, why do we have a podcast? I don't know. All right, here's us uh, talking about Song of the Sea. Enjoy. Okay, quick pitch. Here we go. Song of the Sea takes place in Ireland, follows a family of lighthouse keepers. Mainly, we're kind of along for the adventures of the two children of the family, Ben and Shirsha. Ben is constantly badgering his little sister. He blames her for the death of their mother. And Shirsha is mute. She's kind of unable to speak, has never spoken. One night, Shirsha discovers a magical white coat made of seal fur. And this unveils that she's actually a selkie, a mythological creature that is half seal, half human. Later, Ben and Shirsha are forced to go live with their grumpy old grandmother in the big old city. And the two children decide to run away. And from there, they kind of set off on an adventure across a really uh, lush tapestry of Celtic folklore, uh, intent to save the fairies of Ireland from being turned to stone at the hand of the evil witch Macha. And that pretty much sets up the story of, of Song of the Sea, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much you guys did, like, looked into the movie. but uh, So it's directed by Tom Moore, written by Will Collins. But um, So are you guys familiar with Tom Moore? He had done no. uh, Secret of of Kells. Secret of the Kells. That's right. Um, Secret of the Kells. Yeah. What was that, guys? So, I mean, was... I I know I've known of Tom Moore because I too knew of Secret of the Kells. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, I haven't seen it myself. I haven't seen it either. The, but I, I this is another animated one. Another animated Correct. one. He he went to some art school in Ireland that I I wish I wasn't just calling it some art school in Ireland. But him and his friends broke off after school and they started this um they started this company called animation what's it called no it's called cartoon saloon animation station animation station no it's uh (laughs) him and his friends from college started cartoon saloon first movie they ever did was secret of the kells okay so so holy shit that was huge so they're right out of i think they're right out of college and they do secret of the kells which is a full-length feature film completely hand-drawn um, Irish folklore tale uh, it deals with early Irish Christianity, I believe. Hmm. Anyway, so the movie blows up, right? Becomes it gets nominated for Oscar uh, for best animated wow. uh, feature film, animated feature, and just blows up. And suddenly, these guys at Cartoon Saloon get all these big offers, from what I understand, to be bought by a studio and become 
part, you know, financed by a big studio. And they basically give the studios the middle finger and say, we're going to do, we're going to stay independent. And they stay independent and apparently really struggled to get, you know, to a place where they were financially solvent. I think at one point they were even about to go out of business. Then the second movie they made, finally scrounged together money, was this movie, Song of the Sea. It blows up, gets Academy Award nominations, it gets even better praise than Secret of the Kells. And by now, they're, you know, uh, Cartoon Saloon is becoming a well-known name in the independent. They're kind of like Leica in Portland, right? Right, um, yep, yep, yep. Kind of live in that vein of, of, of independent art feature storytellers. And then the third movie they, they make, his third movie, Tom Moore's third movie, is Wolf Walkers, which is out right now on Apple TV+. And that's okay. getting, it's won every critic that's award. That's getting top of 2020. It's getting with, top of 2020 of, yeah. conversation stuff. Yeah. So like I knew about Secret of the Kells. I didn't, I mean, I knew Tom Moore's name, but I didn't, he's like kind of the Irish Pete doctor. Like he is, he is like, I mean, to create three movies that are so well received, Song of the Sea, I think they're all like 99% on Rotten Tomatoes-ish, all three of his movies. Uh, I mean, I have feelings about Rotten Tomatoes that we can really talk about in another episode because I'd love to have just an episode talking about my feelings about Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Metacritic is a little bit more, you know, level-headed. I think they're, I think it's uh, 85, like around 85 on on Metacritic for his films, but like... Yeah, they're a little bit more, they're more straight shooters or so it feels. Metacritic? Yeah. Yeah. A little more balanced. Well, that's because they have an actual system over there to a weighted system to grade these anyway it's a whole conversation uh, suffice it to say i was just surprised that like tom moore isn't a bigger name over here because i mean i granted his movies aren't pixar is one thing and this is something we can talk about and i think it's worth talking about when we get into the movie pixar is a totally different beast than song of the sea like in the world of animation these are two totally different types of kind of art yeah. art forms you know what i mean yeah. like yeah pixar is is imitating hollywood cinema trying to make something trying to take something that's cartoonish and animate it in a way that feels photorealistic right and they do that to a very good effect i haven't seen soul we know sean is a huge fan of soul but i hear soul looks unbelievable uh as far as cinematic quality but song of the sea and you know, the the cartoon saloon style is a totally different beast. Which is such a f- fucking beautiful beast. I mean, isn't it? I feel like every frame is gorgeous. I mean, ev- ev- they would cut to those wide shots that were just two seconds. And it's like, why so short? Because every time they go wide, there was so much going on. But I mean, I was just entranced by the fucking art, man. I couldn't believe the the... The, the strange detail, you know, the minutiae in the, the floor and the wood and whatever is in the background is just so artful. And it's completely de- opposite than the Pixar stuff. But, man, I was I was gobsmacked just by that. You know, I, I could kind of get lazy with the story and just be in love with what I was looking at. I mean, right from the get-go, you're like smacked in the face with just lush colors. And, like, I, I remember there's a scene in, 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 in Song of the Sea where both the kids have gone to their grandmother's house mm-hmm. and it's an overhead shot looking down at the two kids as they're lying in bed and the walls of the room, logically in your brain, we're looking down on the room. The walls would be 
would be coming towards us in three-dimensional space. But rather than coming toward us in three-dimensional space, the walls are splayed out mm. as if you're looking at a piece of paper that's been sliced and, and folded down. So you can see all the posters on the walls as flat images around the three-dimensional room. And it's just uh -huh. like, it's kind of unlike anything I had ever seen before. Yeah, people should watch it for that alone. I mean, the story is interesting enough and keeps you going, but what they're doing is so original and and it it it's intoxicating it's 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 gorgeous jen and i were watching and just kept saying like i would put this all over my house you know frame after frame like they were so pretty you guys aren't that impressed with the story huh no 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 no, no. okay i and you know i always i always feel so guilty because i understand how uh, you know the work that goes into making any film no one sets out to make a and and I should say two things. One, this is not a bad film, and two, uh, I'm not an animation guy. Like that's why Soul being my favorite film of 2020 to me is such a big deal. That's how hard the story hit me. You know, I I I'm not the target demographic for I mean, I, I I love Pixar, but animation's not really my bag typically. So that was already kind of against this one. I just, I personally, yeah, even just then when you were, and you were a great storyteller, JM, but I just, I just think that this, this story, and maybe it was the way that it was told, I just found it to be very clunky, and it, just like there were, I was already, the moment you're talking about at the beginning when, you know, the, the mother is just finished telling some of these tales to her son and has the the stomach pains. I was already kind of lost then, and that could be my fault. That could be on me. I just kind of felt like the way that things were laid out just could have been either simplified or or just easier to to get to. I just couldn't it was hard for me to stay engaged. I just was I was kind of bored, to be honest. Yeah, my experience wasn't different than yours, and I'm glad to hear that um, because I loved the art so much and everything was so beautiful and s just so unique. But as the story continued to unfold, it was interesting, but it was it, you said clunky, and, and, and I felt the clunk, and I also felt disconnected. Uh, now, maybe I was just a little tired, but it's like the path that it took either like was entirely formulaic and that's where I was m just getting bored, you know, at hitting exp and all the different points, or it was like so off on its own thing. It just didn't keep me, you know, really, um, grabbed, but that was my thing. Like I, I, it set up fine for me. I really fell in love with the heart of it and I appreciated the art throughout, but it just lost me. And I, and I wanted to think it's cause I was tired. JM, did you stick with it throughout? I did. I felt differently than you guys. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not, I, I do agree that it is a, a, a fairly formulaic tale. Um, and I would, I would say that that's like one of my main gripes is how, you know, how predictable the story is at a surface level, you know, you knew, okay, the daughter's mute, you know, sure she's mute, you know, at some point she's going to speak. You know, you know, you, you you could tell pretty early on. At least I could. It was Wizard of Oz. You know, you're taking Wizard of Oz, and you know, it's basically we're not in Dublin anymore. 
is really like what the story is. And, and I, where I differ with you guys is that it, I connected with it. I mean, look, personally, I have a wife, I have a kid, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a dog. Um, I tend to lighthouse. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, no, but a lot of a lot of the story points, it was easy for me to transpose myself in this in the into these characters. Sure. And you know something I want to talk to you guys about, but one of the things I loved most about the movie, and this doesn't have anything to do do with story discrepancy, but really the kids hooked me at the very get go of the movie. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I thought both of the kids, the voices of the kids, were really good. When the boy, yeah, he was so charming. When he would laugh, I kept thinking, "This is what does it remind me of?" And it was the boy in Jojo Rabbit. And I was like, "This," kid, and it wasn't him, was it? I don't think it was. No, no I don't way. think so. I, it was too. He's too. He's too young. But yeah, there's so much. There was so much spirit and character in these performances. It was great. Um, it just the journey got tired for me. The journey started to the formula of it. Drug it, it drug along a, a little bit for me. Sean, I could see you wince when I was saying when I said something about the kids. You don't. Well, I I thought the I thought I uh, look. I agree that the performances. You know, Sersha is whatever because it's she's mute. So yeah, she, she's <laughs> mute. So you, you so you you know you can say whatever about that actor. But but, but part you, of no, the perform- no, no. part of the performance. Sorry to cut you off. Is the animation, and so those right. artists are pulling that out of you. Totally, totally, and I. The, the, well, the, and we have to note, I have to jump in and say the artist's success in making seals fucking amazing. I mean, yeah. some of that stuff is revolutionary and it's so intoxicating. Like it's really, it just, it's an incredible world I never knew was there. And it's just these fucking garage Irish geniuses who say fuck you to the system and sit in there and do it three times over their own way. I love it. Yeah. Oh, I know. And that's, that's, you know, it breaks my heart that I, didn't connect with the story because visually I really appreciated what they were doing. What I was, what I was going to say is uh, yeah, the, 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 the actor playing Ben was, he was good. He was strong, but uh, to me that trope of the sibling, you know, being angry at this or, or, or blaming this other sibling for something like a mother's death. I just think that's super tired. Um, sure. I just, I just, I just couldn't, I, it just wasn't for me. It just wasn't, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I hate to, to bash it because I appreciate what Zach was saying, you know, how they're going about making their own work. Um, and look, I love Brendan Gleeson. I just, it just didn't, uh, there was nothing for me to feel connected to or get excited about. That's just, that's just me personally. Kind of, I'd actually like to pay it one compliment. It was something that, as a concept, I love, but the execution of it did not work for me at all. And that is the idea of we open the film with the mother sharing these stories, and then along the way, Ben encounters the beings, you know, and these these folk tales come to life in person. Yeah, I love that as a concept. Love it. I just didn't like the way it was executed. You know, the Alice in Wonderland vibe of like running into these characters and right. and seeing because that's really that's another. It's kind of Wizard of Oz meets Alice in Wonderland wrapped into one yes. in, in Irish folk folklore. 
it didn't always work because you didn't really know who these characters were and and but I will say I I I don't know maybe it was just the kids were so damn cute and the world was so lush to me and beautiful that yeah. I was along for the journey. I mean I certainly found myself at times going, yeah, I know what's going to happen. Um I still I bawled like a baby at the end. Oh wow. I I Gosh. cried like a baby. Now a lot of that's personal. Like I lost my father. So like, you mm. know, any movie that deals with the loss of a parent automatically connects with me on a different yeah. level than most. So, um, and then also just having, you know, a wife and having been through pregnancy and like, you know, it just, it connected with me on a personal level. So I really, yeah, but, but you know what? That's, that's, that's what I fucking love about movies is whether or not you try to do it, you bring your own life and your own experiences to whatever it is you're watching, you know? And it's like to piggyback off of what you just said, my friend Noah and I were talking about soul and I had a deeper connection to soul. Meanwhile, he has had a deeper connection to Coco Moana and inside out. And he was talking about how he, because he has two daughters now, it, it, he looks at it through the lens of being a parent, of like, what are my kids feeling? Like, how are they seeing the world? And so when it has to do with that sort of thing, he is more moved when Soul, and not to spoil anything and not to take away from Song of the Sea, but just to make this point, was, is, you know, he's not a parent. He's not a, you know, it, it it's it's a guy who's an artist. I just think it's really interesting that at the end of the day, I think it has more to do with your own personal experiences. And that's ultimately like what you take away from, you know, the art you consume. And and for me, there just wasn't anything in this particular piece that I've experienced or from my own life. You know, I don't know that if I had been to Ireland, like you asked earlier, Maybe I, you know, if in my past I had been to Ireland and had a certain experience in the culture, maybe there would be something in it that I could connect to, you know? Yeah, but I think it could be tighter, you know, structure-wise in the path along, like what you were talking about in the beginning, Sean, where it just kind of, it's it just missed... I don't think we need, we need to have these parallels in our life to connect with the story. Like that's their job to make us, uh, you know, jump on, on the train. And I just, I don't know. I I think I might've been a little bit tired. I definitely want to revisit it for the art alone. I want to see it again and maybe a second time through I'll really latch on. Um, but I'm glad to hear you connected with you so much, JM. I love that. Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely connected with me. I definitely, it's impossible not to compare it to Pixar because we're so Pixar-ified mm-hmm. in this country. Um, I was just happy to see something that wasn't from America, that was from a different culture. I thought the culture was very immersive, and I was really interested in it. Um, you know, yes, they're writing. Like, did you guys ever think about, like, for, I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but why did the dad let the kids go with the grandmother? <laughs> like, I wouldn't, I, as a father, I would never let my my mother-in-law take my kids from me so willingly. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a minor thing, but oh yeah. And I started thinking about the mother's a Selkie, right? The, the fairies tell, tell Shirsha, Oh, if you go take the white coat and sing your song, then you will then, 
you will free all the the stone frozen fair why didn't the mom do that because then we wouldn't have the song of the sea i know but it kind of bugs me and it's like it's a minor thing um but that bugged me was something i really i mean if you guys don't mind i want to bring up and just poke you and see what you think but there's something i really want to talk about as far as an example of formulaic writing and how it's easy to fall into tropes. Um, and I, something minor, it's just an example that I think could have elevated the story so much more. And I want to see what you guys think. And it has to do with uh, Ben, the son Ben, who is, from the onset of the story, afraid of water, right? We see that from the get-go. He's wearing a life vest everywhere he goes, lives on an island where his father is the light keeper, but he will not go in the water. He gets dragged in the water at the beginning of the movie by Koo, the dog, and just screams like a baby and is terrified and jumps out of the water. So from the get-go, I'm seeing Ben and I'm going, okay, he's afraid of water. That's his character flaw, right? That's his thing that he needs to get over. Like every character, every good character has character flaws, right? When you think about the first thing I thought about when I saw Ben was like, it's an easy connection to make to Brody in Jaws, right? Sheriff Brody in Jaws is terrified of water. That works as a narrative device because you're fo- forcing Brody to go out into the water to confront his fear. So for the entire movie, he's chasing the shark and every scene we are watching Brody forced to confront his fears. And when characters are forced to confront their fears, they are forced to either change or or die in stasis, right? And that is good storytelling. That That is like why we like characters. That's why we watch movies. It's because generally we want to see flawed characters trying to change, right? So Ben's character is afraid of water. And from the get-go, I mean, don't you guys pretty much assume, okay, Ben's going to have to confront his fear of water. I mean, the writer in me was like, oh, okay, he's going to have to confront his fear of water. And at some point he's going to have to save his sister, by confronting that fear, and that will bring the two siblings back together. And that is, spoiler alert, that is what happens. (laughs) But just from a writer's standpoint, so like I was thinking about it, and I think it would be so much more interesting if you didn't know that he was afraid of water. What if, just for example, what if Ben at the get-go says he's the best swimmer ever? He's, 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 he's got bravado. He's got posters on his walls of Michael Phelps or the Irish Michael Phelps, whoever that is. <laughs> and everywhere he goes, he talks about how fast a swimmer he is and how good he is at swimming. Then when we get to the break into the third, to the climax of the movie, and he is forced to save his sister, oh no, we find out that he's actually been lying all along. You know, Brody works in Jaws because you're watching him confront his fear in every scene, right? Ben, we know his fear from the get-go, but he's never confronting his fear throughout the story. Mm. The disservice that I think they do in the narrative here is that they allow you to watch Ben as a character, not thinking about his fears, and you get to know Ben really well. So by the time the movie ends, you you know Ben is 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 this kind of headstrong, adaptable kid, right? I mean, he's literally running around the whole movie saving his sister. He's the he's the protagonist in this movie, right? So by the time he has to confront his fears, 
you kind of you kind of know he's going to do it because he's adaptable, he's headstrong, he's like he's got the character like the character traits of someone who you kind of are confident in that he's going to do. If you withheld that information and what I'm getting at is if you withheld his fear until that final moment, then then what you're doing is you're you're forcing the audience to reevaluate the character completely because the character's been lying to you the whole movie. So then in that moment where he has to he's forced to save his sister, you as an audience member are reevaluating your trust in the character. So then inevitably you don't know if he's going to be able to save the sister or not. There's more stakes because you don't know how to what to think of the character. As opposed to giving the character this problem at the beginning, watching a character go through a bunch of trials and tribulations and then in the end knowing that we're going to have to cross that threshold. Does that make sense? Does that does that connect with you guys at all? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think for me, it's 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 our job to muddy those formulas, all of those those factors and story points and, and processes that we know work and we know is the reason we're here to make movies. It's to cover that shit up with distraction of humanity and that's what makes you really come out of the cinema and go, oh my God, that changed my life. But when we're just following A to Z by the book, you you know what's coming. Can we talk about the music? Did you guys, I just loved the music. I, I oh, Good, I was hoping, I was, I was holding my breath because I was like, you're going to say it's bad. No, it's great. Yeah. I, I, don't re- I, don't rem- I don't remember the music. It wasn't, what had I watched the you night before? You are a I'd watched... fool, Sean. <laughs> Apparently. I'd, I'd, watched, I'd watched Peter Jackson's The Lovely Bones a couple nights ago just randomly. Oh, I don't and like I was... that movie. Sorry. Oh, boy. I'm right there with yeah, you. Yeah, me too. And, and, and uh, he, his score just you know pushed us through every, every corner of it. And to go from that experience to this, I, that was my first comment. I looked over to Jen and was like, this music is so perfect. It's so beautiful. It's right there. It's not too much. It's taking us along. It was wonderful. Oh man, I hate to be the two for two hater. You're not but, hating. Uh, You're not hating. You're just wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wrong. Exactly. It's funny. I don't know if you guys were watching the movie and thinking this, but a couple times I got Coraline vibes. Um, sure. And it turns out the guy Bruno Coulet, who did the score, did the score for Coraline. Oh, and wow. I was like, oh, okay. Also, he did the score for a movie that everyone should see. A very Almost strange movie. Have you guys ever heard of Winged Migration? Oh, I love Winged Migration. He did the yeah. score to Winged Migration. I was just thinking about that the other day, watching like a, like some geese. Yeah. Winged Migration is an amazing documentary, Sean, that you should check out. That is literally just a silent movie of birds in migration. and With w- small cameras strapped on birds for the first time for the first you know, 20 t- years ago. And it's it's And it has this it's- symphonic score that Bruno Collet had, di- had done. And I swear it's one of the best scores I've ever... Sabrina, my wife, plays it on the piano all the time. It's We loved Wing Migration. So when I saw that he did the score to this movie, and because I had such a visceral reaction to the sound palette of the movie, I was really excited. I've just got a projector set up. I'm going to watch Winged Migration inches from the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody go watch Winged Migration. It is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, what uh, what did you give this this movie on Letterboxd? What did you rate it? I gave it I gave it three stars. Uh, One for the animation. The animation was absurdly beautiful, and I wish I connected with the story more. I just didn't. Uh, And for Brendan Gleeson. 
anything he's involved in, I can't can't give below a three star. That's a, that's a that's a fair rule. I, I think that's a fair rule. Anything when Brendan Gleeson gets an automatic three, we'll give it a three two. I think that's. I, I I feel like I was disconnected due to being tired, but the art was so or beautiful. There was you didn't like it, or I didn't like it. <laughs> Um, what I did like, and I haven't mentioned here, is like this is the sort of movie, however, maybe tired in its execution, like you're saying, JM, with these character setups that aren't maybe as fresh or interesting as they could be. It's still this sort of journey tale done well enough is great candy for me in like imagining what I want to make in this scale, in this kind of journey-esque film in a really great big way, this shit just gets me going. So it's nice fuel, you know, if nothing else, to go, oh yeah, this is the this is the excitement towards these huge epics that you can make even in a small micro budget or something. So I was I was happy to have got that from it. I'm gonna be a slightly more fanboyish here of uh, of the movie. I originally said three and a half stars, but I bumped it up to four stars solely on the art of it all yeah. of just being so um yeah so unique and worth worth i think checking yeah. out i to me it's it's a movie i would come back and revisit more like you zach like for the fu- for the fun of it like i really mm-hmm. think it's something i would watch with my my kids in the future mm-hmm. um with jack's a little bit older uh i would watch it with him and you know it it's not it's certainly not better than a four for me. It wouldn't tread into that territory of being a movie that I would, I would come to for like real key creative things that I'm looking for. But, um, I think it's better than it's better than most of the American animated films I've seen. Exactly. That's what I just was thinking. American studio system, like pay attention, like, like let hire some young artists who are out of, you know, what is that school up the grapevine there? Uh, Cal Arts. Uh, Cal Arts. Grab grab some kids and let them go make a feature because it's going to be really exciting, you know, and, and they're just recycling the same old three-dimensional perfection movie after movie. And you see something like this and the story may be lacking, but it's still pretty fucking exquisite. Pixar has become so big that it has created its own formula. And if you even, right. if these kids, there there are kids who come out of Cal Arts and they want to work at Pixar and they go to Pixar and Pixar has a board and that board says yeah. here's the way a Pixar story works and Pixar stories have become so seminal in our our culture over here in America especially they dominate animated culture animated film culture that it's become it's we almost become formulaic and that's another thing that I really liked watching this is I didn't yes it was formulaic in in story but uh it was really nice to be into a world that you would never get in American uh, cinema right. in American animated film. And if you did, it would feel aped. Yeah. It's very inspiring to like, I kind of was joking at earlier, just like stay in your garage, perfect, whatever the hell your vision is, and then go execute. You know, that's, that's what I take away from something like this because it's so beautiful. And if, you know, if we can execute that in, in other live action ways, that's, that's my goal. Uh, just kind of simmering forever until it has to become something out in the real world. Okay, that is, uh, that's all we got for Song of the Sea. Next time, we're going to be jumping into, uh, I think, a filmmaker we're all really excited to discuss. We'll be watching Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train, a film that literally has everything. It's got, like, seedy Memphis motels, 
kitsch-obsessed Japanese tourists, amateur thieves. I think there's a ghost of Elvis in it. I don't know. I, I haven't seen it, but uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, you guys, but we got any recommendations before we go? Anything you want to tell people to watch this week? Uh, I just watched, uh, well, we're, we're supposed to do Current, right? Okay, okay, I, I, I've got Current, I've got Current. WandaVision is actually doing something pretty different. I'm only three episodes in, but I really appreciate the way that they're telling the story and some of the devices they're using. I think it's really clever. So that's my, I would, I would say that I was very pleasantly surprised by WandaVision. Zach, what do you got? That movie, I talked to this guy yesterday, uh, it's called Teenage Emotions. That's worth, certainly worth checking out. I think, John Michael, you told me you have a pass. I think it's only $10 for Slamdance's virtual pass. I think that's amazing. Check out Teenage Emotions. For this kid, he's probably older than me, about my age, Frederick Daw. He's a teacher and he took his high school students and made this really compelling narrative that feels like documentary, is so raw, is so human, and it's beautiful. Teenage Emotions at Slamdance, and they're up uh, February 12th, 25th. Uh, I'm going to recommend, uh, I just recently watched uh, the, I think it's on Hulu, it's an Irish show, uh, Normal People. Uh, I just really, uh, I, I, Acting I, is superb. Acting is superb. This is the type of show, Normal People, that could go south really quick and become, you know, just like melodrama, CW melodrama. And the direction is so heightened and so good. It feels so realistic. The performances, the cinematography are all just working really well and, 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 and very connectable is what I will say. Very connectable. Yeah, I liked it. We're going to be back next week. Uh, until then, you can follow us at Twitter. We now have a Twitter account, guys. Uh, we're at PickupsPod, at PickupsPod. That's on Twitter. You can also visit our letterboxed, L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X, no E, D and we're at pickups podcast. That's all one word. Or you can email us at pickupspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, Sean, where can they find you on Instagram at Sean Harrison Jones? I don't really use it. So vimeo.com forward slash Sean Harrison Jones. Zach, where are you? Instagram, Zachary Ray Sherman, Twitter, Zach R Sherman. Yay. And you can find me, uh, ever so infrequently at Instagram on John Michael underscore Powell and rarely if ever on Twitter at JM underscore Powell. Uh, I guess uh, that's all we got for this week, so we'll pick it up next week, guys. Hoo-ha. Hoo-ha! <laughs>